HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Brooklyn Slate. BrooklynSlate.com for more. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. What's going to happen in 2016? Stay tuned to this episode of Tech Bytes and find out. Heritage Radio Network listeners, that's the last time you're going to hear me say that live in 2015 because this is the last episode of the year. Tech Bites is the show where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today, to help us take a look at what that's maybe going to look like in 2016 is the always brilliant Dana Cowan. Thanks. That that is some kind of intro. Always brilliant. I'll try. Yeah. Well, I was gonna I was gonna pivot off that in different ways, and you know, talk about you know being smart and also just being like a lovely shiny person. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so we have Dana in studio, and in the booth, as always, we have our musical director, engineer, Heritage Radio executive producer, DJ, oh, okay. host of. Full service radio on Thursday nights and Gunwash, the occasional co-host and in-studio guest, intern wrangler, Jack Inslee. Wow. How many more <laughs> things can I add for 2016 to that intro? Well, I think that so many things in 2016, we should just go to Jack. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to see you for this final show, Jen. I know. I can't believe it came so quickly. It did. This is episode 44. This is the first wow. official year of Tech Bites. Yeah. Congratulations. We started the first week in January, and here we are. It's a good year. Yeah, very exciting. Well, we, all, we have started every show, like a good meal, with an app. And we usually go around the room, and we all talk about favorite apps that we're using, things we've discovered, sometimes apps that have not worked like they're supposed to and been disappointing. Um, I'm going to kick it off with something that I actually got from a publicist, which wound up being really interesting. It's called Roast Perfect. And it is from the Certified Angus Beef Board. And the idea is, it's the holiday time. People want to cook a roast and potentially a roast beef. And this app is basically just going to help you with that. And it's really well done, actually. And 
a roast beef, I think, is something that I love that you hardly ever see anymore because it's very old school. And it's also an intimidating thing to buy and cook, I think, because it's also so expensive. If you want to get a beautiful crown rib roast for eight people, it's going to run you upwards of $100 really easily. So then there's the panic that sets in of not only not turning out a beautiful meal, but also kind of <laughs> destroying something that's that expensive. So this app is very simple. It does one thing. It'll walk you through the number of people, the cut of meat. It has a timer on it that you can set based on your doneness and all of that. So if you're focused on one thing and want to do one thing well, I think this might be the app for you. It was kind of a surprise. I was actually surprised that it was so good because sometimes these things aren't. I love the idea of something that is just for one thing. I mean, I feel like as humans, we multitask all the time and we expect that of our technology. Like it multitasks and the more it can do, the better. But sometimes that means as humans or as technology, we don't do that one thing so well. We don't do any of those individual things so well. So um, that sounds great, assuming you have that need. I love prime rib. It's like my favorite thing in the world. Yeah, me too. I agree. And it's also, though, I think... I agree with you entirely on the multitasking thing. And we did an episode um, about a month ago called Disconnect from Your Tech as a counterpoint to it. And we basically talked about how multitasking is kind of a myth. <laughs> I actually, I mean, I, don't, I can't multitask. So I know that for me as a, a person, it, um, it doesn't exist. I've seen my kids do it, though. And so for a 15-year-old, I think... It might, their brains might be wired differently, so it works for them. But I'm actually really interested in technology, but I'm also interested in the idea of disconnect. And in fact, um, at Food Wine Magazine, we we're talking about doing an entire issue around the idea of disconnecting. And what, is, what does that mean? Like, how disconnected can you get? How uncomfortable does that make you? Is it something that you actually should begin to get comfortable with? Should you do a digital detox? Like, you know, are we at that point in the world where we should consider, you know, mindfulness over sort of the mindlessness of having our lives um, dictated by a small screen? I think the Internet would answer you with a resounding yes. <laughs> <laughs> Jack, do you have an app for us this week? The last one of the year? Oh, man. I wish I had something cooler, but, you know, 44 weeks of the show. <laughs> I've gone through a lot of my really good apps. I have um, Skyview, which is just a fun little thing I downloaded, um, and it's exactly what it sounds like. Um, you kind of point your phone in any direction, shows you constellations and planets, and oh. it actually even pulls up the, um, what do you call them, the astrological kind of corresponding figures to all these constellations it's really nice um and and to kind of the secondly with um the tech and the app space here i did upgrade my phone <laughs> uh, congratulations so i've got this How's big, that going? it's great it's good uh if my mother taught me one thing it's way, it's how to kind of like wrangle customer service reps and find coupons to get oh. free deals oh. um, and somehow i ended up getting this free of cost so You're kidding. <laughs> can we do we need to do like a mini mini episode within the episode maybe next year and you can tell us how we can wrangle customer service and coupons oh, to I get a do, free phone i can do a season on customer service hacks for sure wow <laughs> but, um, that's the, that's much better than you even know that's yeah, awesome yeah I, and i'm surprised it's taken 44 episodes for this to come to light because that's extremely helpful True. valuable yeah very valuable yeah 
Um, but anyway, the the I got the six S plus, which is very large, and I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about it, but I'm loving it, and um, works for me. There's all these new features, the 3D touch thing. I'm sure people have seen the ads. the The one big noticeable thing is when you take a photo, it actually has an option where it buffers. It kind of takes a little bit of footage before and after that photo. So if you press in on the photo, it becomes like a little GIF almost, like a mm-hmm. little moving image, and you see the moment right before and after the photo was snapped. So that's pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. What is the name of the um, astrology app? It is Sky Skyview. Skyview. It's, it's nice. It's Constellations. Free. When you said oh. Skyview, I thought that was going to be like Google Earth View or Street View and then just give you like the weather or something like that. Oh, no. I'm deeper than that. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be great for your next camping trip. Exactly. Dana, do you have an app that you really use a lot or enjoy? I mean, I actually... Um some of the things that I find useful are so obvious. Um, like I am newly completely in love with Instacart and I, you know, I almost feel the need to apologize for it um, because of course I do my, I'm an avid green market shopper and, um, you know, I do a little store to little store. Like I will devote days and days to that. But sometimes, you know, just that the idea of someone being my very own personal shopper like I don't need it for shoes I don't need it for jackets the personal shopper thing but boy do I love someone navigating fairway in my stead it's sort of like having a personal assistant it it really will do those personal things that you're not supposed to ask a personal assistant to do that's right and then they call you They're, they're like oh my gosh I couldn't find you know this kind of mint but they have that kind of mint and how great is that you know, it's, it, I, I really, I'm in love. Instacart, it's amazing. It changes people's lives. It really, it, it changed mine. You know, I was um, developing and uh, recipes to shoot for the magazine, but I had a million other things that I had to do that day. And that's how I fit it out all in. So there you go. A life hack in the app. That's how she fits it all in. Yeah. And she's a busy lady, Dana Cowan. So I have her on the show today to take a look forward to 2016, because I think she's extremely well-equipped to do that, given she has been in magazine publishing for 21 years. And when you publish a magazine, I don't know if listeners have really thought it through, but when you're holding the December issue of Food & Wine magazine in your hands, they were working on that months ago, because the printing process takes a while. And the recipe development and photography process takes a while, as does writing and editing and coming up with the ideas. So she's a person who has made a very successful career out of being able to look forward four months, six months, seven months, a year, and be able to predict what will be coming the trend and resonate in the future. So we're hoping you can work some future prediction magic here today. Sure. I would, I would say that I have um, the most amazing team who are, we're all like, you know, there's Girl Scouts, but we're sort of like food and wine scouts. And everyone fans out across the country and looks for the trends, tastes the trends, tries the trends. And so you're right. We're very um, trend focused. And there's so many things that we're excited about because as you know, the trends in the food world have really sped up. So um, there are new things all the time, at least in urban areas. Why do you think it has sped up? Has that been the part of the impact of social media and digital, Instagram, Twitter? Um, I think it's part of social um, 
social media. But I also think it is our relentless quest for the new. Um, and because that is combined with our love of food, when you put those two things together, things speed up and people get bored quickly. And I don't know if that's really because of social media, but um, they are on to the next thing. And um, so, you know, you can look on two levels. There are the things that are timeless. Um, there are things that have moments. And then there are, you know, all of the trends. So I'm actually fascinated by timeless. And I'm actually very, very interested in old school, like you're talking about, you know, prime rib. I think that looking forward, there will we will recapture some of the sturdy and ordinary things that... Um, People have passed by because they haven't seemed glitzy, and I see great hope in this. The you know sort of the um, the Oldsmobile of food brands, um, whether it's like a Jim Beam as a drink or something else. And so I I think that uh, that'll be really interesting to see. I don't see huge evidence of it. I just believe it. I believe it's ahead of us. Um, The thing that I'm most intrigued by for the coming year, I think, is the the uncoupling, the, um, the change in what it means to be a restaurant and to go to a restaurant. Um, Kate Crater, who is uh, the magazine's restaurant editor, who is completely brilliant in every single way, and she is a seer and a visionary, um, you know, calls, it, calls the trend sort of the anti-meal. And I think that that's really interesting because we um, go to restaurants for experiences, and the meal is part of the experience, but what happens if, you know, that's only one part of your night? So the anti-meal would be you stop by at a restaurant that has great food, but you're just you're not there for the night. You know, you're you're not um, you don't want that seat for two and a half hours. You want that seat for forty five minutes. And what does that mean? And w- what will restaurants do to accommodate that? So um, there's a big wine bar trend of food and wine bars together, which it's not so much in my mind about the wine although wine is an important aspect of it but it's the fact that you can perch you can eat you can um have a like a relaxing and inviting experience and then you can do your next thing you can go hear some great music you can you know take a walk you can see a movie and this idea because about five years ago restaurants replaced all those other experiences, right? So people seem to be doing everything else less, restaurants more. But as culture has sped up and people's interest in art and music and film um, has also accelerated, people want to do more than one thing in a night. So um, I'm I'm particularly fascinated by this notion of the anti-meal. Now, have you seen um, that in your own life, Jen? The anti-meal? Yeah. You know, I think... um when you talk about things that are timeless, the first thing that I thought of was comfort food and classic food and French bistro food and Italian, you know, the good pasta place and the places that you go to eat or the things that you eat when you don't have to think about it so much and it's things that you know and you love and you enjoy and they kind of go up and down in popularity depending on, you know, the economy or what the trend was before. And so I I don't think that my personal life is really anti-meal, although I would say, well, actually, that's not true. I would say in my in my social and business life, mm-hmm. restaurants as a almost like the nighttime coffee shop, I think, Ooh, is I what they are. That. You know, the coffee shop 
is still very much a place where we take coffee and baristas and, and the beverage itself extremely seriously. But the coffee shop has become the de facto meeting point, office space, job interview, extension to my apartment that's too small with too many roommates, place I go for Wi-Fi when mine breaks. And people go to coffee shops now at all times of the day, not actually to drink coffee anymore, but to use it as, as a hub for their social and professional life. So I think the nighttime equivalent to that has very much become... Um, the bar part of restaurants or restaurants that are a little more casual or loungy, you can kind of get in and out, where you are meeting up with people for a purpose that is not the big meal. And as you say so wisely, it's not that the food isn't fantastic, mm-hmm. right? Because the place you're attracted to for the coffee shop, the coffee has to be amazing. Like you exactly. would never be caught dead going to a coffee shop that has crappy coffee. Right. Um and the same with like I love the idea of the nighttime coffee shop. So yeah, you're not gonna you like you're gonna enjoy the food experience, but it's coupled with something else. Um, I will say though that in terms of the meal being the central experience and the theatrical experience, there are fewer and fewer places I think that do big restaurant theatrics, and I think that's a combination of time and expense, time and money. I think that's also a factor of people wanting to um, not work so hard when they go to a big restaurant experience. You know, sort of something that's maybe so upscale, so formal, so constructed, so intellectual that people don't want to necessarily work that hard when they're going to go out for a meal. So I also think that... (sighs) I want to say that the restaurant dining experience, even at the places where there are chefs that we're talking about and there are places we want to go and they're on all those best hot new lists, I want to say restaurants have gotten smaller. And I don't mean that in a um, less valuable sense, but smaller in terms of it's a little more casual. It's not quite so over the top. The price points are trying to be more gentle. The range of food is kind of a little bit more familiar. The spaces themselves are smaller. Um, you know, sort of everybody, I feel like the, the, the quintessential restaurant for this moment in time right now is like the small fringe neighborhood, low rent, young chefs, late 20s, early 30s, kind of two, three star review, interesting orange wines with then like some interesting ingredients, a couple of techniques, but pretty manageable all the way through. You can come in, you can do an hour and a half turn, and you're out. I agree with you. What, what names would you put to that restaurant? I would put Contra. That's I would put Stella. Yeah, um, totally. Those kinds of things. And Contra is a good example because they also have the Compendium Wine Bar for right. the nighttime coffee shop. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. So in, in that vein, something that um, we've also seen sort of an increase in is amazing bakeries um, all around the country. And um, that's a trend that I love because I have such a horrific or delightful um, sweet tooth. So the idea that bakers, um, and that's everything from bread to pastry um, to cookies, you know, I think we're just seeing great experimentation in that space. I'm Devoted, deeply devoted to Dominique Ansel, who I think is at the you know pinnacle of that kind of experimentation, where you have experimentation, but also you know immaculate implementation and a great space. And you know his creativity is 
um, unmatched. And it's not really... I mean, I think the Cronite is a, a brilliant um, piece of food, but it isn't about that at all. And I'm so glad that he's continued to develop amazing, surprising, delicious, unusual um, things from there. You know, it's not like he had that and then he, like, sort of went home or he, you know, Xeroxed those. So... Um, yeah, like I had a nighttime s'more the other, a nighttime frozen s'more. So um, toasted marshmallow, and inside there was like a black truffle caramel mm. ice cream. Like, that was amazing. That sounds good. Yeah, that was great. At a Quest Love salon. Couldn't be better. <laughs> I Yeah, I can't imagine it being much better. No. Dominique Ansel is a great uh, point to pivot on in terms of the impact of digital and social media because one of the fascinating things about I think the rapidity that how, how rapidly things are moving in life today does have to do with the instantaneous nature of social media when Dominique's Cronut first really hit the airwaves on Instagram and Twitter and, and Facebook and all those things the first counterfeit Cronuts were in Korea because they saw it on social media. And in New York City, a lot of people I don't think were really aware of it, but the Korean, French, Korean pastry chain, Paris Baguette, which is one of my personal favorites, I love that place and that chain and all their crazy baked goods and some very, just straight ahead, very good baked goods. Mm. They had the Krona like two weeks later in their shop because they saw it, they developed it, and then they pushed it out to all of their stores. So... You know, the interesting thing about that is it goes so quickly that you don't even realize sometimes, I think, how fast things are happening and, and where they're coming from. But it's also a really interesting point of discovery of how some of those, I think, timeless things that you're talking about, I feel like timeless things become trends when a new generation of people discover them. Right. Well, I think maybe like the baking and the breads is maybe one of them because that to me is timeless. Good bakery, good pastry, good bread is timeless. But as new generations come into things for the first time, of course, everybody thinks they're discovering something first. Yeah. And timeless although, becomes a trend. Um, I mean, timeless. Timeless is tricky as a as a trend, which is part of what's nice about it, I guess. But um, the thing about the breads, at least the breads that I've seen, there is an evolution in bread. So, I mean, like the perfect baguette, I don't think we're going to see a ton of that. First of all, it's really, I think it's hard to do the perfect baguette. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to do the perfect croissant, you know, and there's a lot of croissants in the world. But where I've seen the um, the evolution of bread is with the grains, like these beautiful ancient American greens or heritage greens and what people have done with them that is just stunning and very diverse um, you know so instead of having like the perfect sourdough and I'm not saying there isn't the perfect sourdough but I feel like some of those bread things have actually moved forward now the chocolate chip cookie let it be said that has not moved <laughs> forward and there's a lot of those around so um, and that is you know that's totally timeless. I think that um, the idea of being able to counterfeit food is intriguing. So you see something on um, on social, 
and you're in Korea and you recreate it. But you, what are you recreating? You, you actually don't know because you don't know what it tastes like. You know what it's called. You know what it looks like. And I think that that creates problems, right? Because think of all the chefs like Rene Redzepi, you know, mm-hmm. people um, from Noma in Copenhagen. People know they think they know Renee's food and a lot of people have staged for a few days and then they bring the philosophy back but is it actually Renee's food is it a facsimile of his food and what happens when the globe is overtaken by facsimile food you know it's sort of like a um like a bad video game uh because the original has so much obviously it has so much integrity it has it has a structure and a story and a profile that the facsimiles never can and so I guess that's my plea for everybody to, you know, be true to themselves and not do the facsimile foods, even if it seems like you, you saw it on the Internet and it's going to make your restaurant so much more popular. It can't forever. Then you have to find the next thing and then you don't stand for anything. And, you know, the corona dies and then what happens to you? It's the same thing that happens to people in life when they do that with, you know, their job or their look or their friends. You know, if you try and create something that looks really great in the digital world, it sometimes kind of falls apart in real life. Yeah. But something that won't fall apart in real life, we're going to take a break right now and go to hear a word from our sponsors, who are Brooklyn Slate, which we love. And we're going to listen to some music from Taxstar. Today's program is brought to you by Brooklyn Slate Company, a manufacturer of slate cheese boards, coasters, and other fine items. Brooklyn Slate Company is a collaborative effort from Brooklyn graphic designer Sean Tice and Parsons graduate student Christy Hadica. After visiting Christy's family slate quarry in upstate New York in the spring of 2009, the two grabbed a few pieces for use as all-purpose boards back home in Brooklyn and began gifting pieces to friends. The response was so overwhelmingly positive that the two struck out to produce a line of slate products. We encourage you to visit brooklynslate.com for more. You can also get your own Brooklyn Slate care package by becoming a super fan member of Heritage Radio Network. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate for more. Hey, this is Chris Kuzmi. And Mary Isaac. Of Fun Men About, about it. it. On heritageradionetwork.org. Have you checked out our new website, heritageradionetwork.org? So we are just one of many amazing shows. It's a not-for-profit radio station, and we need your support. So click on the red beating heart on the upper right portion of the screen. There is no donation too big or too small. Take your weekly beer budget, turn it into support for heritageradionetwork.org. We survive because of you. Thank you for letting us do what we do. Well, if you've just tuned in and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bites, the Heritage Radio Network show that takes a look at the intersection of food and technology. And today we have Dana Cowan in studio taking a look at 2016. And one of the things that will be impactful in 2016, although I don't know if we know exactly how, is definitely social media. And if you don't follow Dana, you should look for her at FW Scout 
S-C-O-U-T, on Twitter and Instagram if you want to see in real time what she's thinking about and what's going to potentially be impactful to the rest of us coming up. Dana, how important is social media and in what you do on the day-to-day? And how important is it? Do you use it to find things yourself? Does it have a huge impact if you tweet something? Do, can you bring the house down? <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I, 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 that's a great thing to aim for. I'm not sure I'm bringing any houses down. But um, I love social media. I, I think that most people who like social media, they pick their... Um, their medium and mine is Instagram because I, I love the visual um, aspect and of course I love words but um, I find Instagram so immediate and I can just get lost going down rabbit holes and I feel at the end of it I ask myself so was this sort of like a Captain Crunch experience or was it like you know a Kashi cereal experience like was it um you know, was it empty calories or did I really feel like restored and like, you know, ready to start my day? And I, I fall actually on the restorative side. I love seeing what's in the world and I love following, um, many different threads and people. So I'm interested in street art and following street on art on Instagram exposes me to worlds that I just wouldn't know. Um, and I love following plenty of people in the food world and seeing what they're incredibly excited about um, because I feel it is at Food and Wine magazine we have a stringer network and the stringers are invaluable to us because they live around the world and they tell us what's happening and they edit the world for us but a well curated feed it doesn't replace a stringer but it is a great um, sort of add on to a very smart person telling you, you know, their curated vision of the world. So uh, I like people who have strong points of view. And those people aren't necessarily the most followed or have the most likes. It's that they have a a personality and a a reason to follow them. Um, Social as food porn is less interesting to me. So, you know, I'm less interested in, you know, following for the gooey egg situation than I am that uh, following someone who's traveling and discovering something new in an area that I, um, that I don't know. So, um, and then I, I love things like niche just for the, the people and the history and the quotes and the beauty of their feed. So, um, I think social has a huge impact on us because it makes the world so small. It makes discovery so easy Uh, And that's the positive side. And the negative side, um, you know, we get hammered with um, what's most popular, most popular, most popular. And I I understand that. But I feel that does not take us down the best path for people to continue to um, sort of traffic in images that they think will do well that that makes them feel good about the feed, but actually isn't reflecting what's interesting um, in the world at large. And there's also the question, as we were talking about before the break, if um, if you're trying to recreate something that you see from social, if you're a chef, if you're a home cook, um, you could be completely missing the point. Um, it might look the same, but it might not feel the same. And I feel like that's an empty experience. 
Do you think it's possible to build a successful brand, whether that be for a magazine and publishing or for a restaurant, without using social media? No. I think that uh, I've seen people try it. Um, you know, we definitely know people who proudly are anti-social media. They don't have, um, they don't have Instagram accounts. And I think that that's foolish uh, because it's, it's as if saying, I am not going to use the letter, you know, R in any of my conversations. Like, you could do it, but your ability to communicate with your audience is severely restricted. I would almost go one step further and say it's almost like trying to open a business without a telephone or something like that. (laughs) You know, I mean, because we we have had many discussions on this show about what makes a company a tech company Mm -hmm. and a food tech company. And oftentimes people say, oh, well, we have an app. But I really believe that the app store is the new Yellow Pages, that it's simply a way for people to find a business and connect to it and use it the same way people use the Yellow Pages to look for, you know, a plumber or a paper store or a florist because in the convenience of ordering and transacting. and I think the thing about the Yellow Pages as an app metaphor is that the Yellow Pages is highly organized and it's limited. It actually is bound. And the challenge with the app store is you can search for the plumber, but you actually app, the plumber's app. But you may never find um, the kind of plumber you want because that, that plumber is buried and he hasn't, you know, figured out. It's a rabbit out. hole. It's a rabbit hole. That's a yeah. good, that's a, that's a really great observation. Um, so in terms of Instagram, it's definitely starting to reach maximum density. We have our paid Instagrammers now. Instagramming is a job. Instagramming is a marketing and business strategy. Do you think that sustains itself in 2016? A little bit more? Doesn't quite jump the shark? Maybe jumps the shark? Do we shift to Snapchat? I think that everybody's really intrigued by Snapchat. I am as well. Um, Snapchat has a natural audience that may or may not overlap with um, a brand's audience, and I think that's important to know. And I think that uh, those of us in the media or in the brand building side of things, um, we perceive things to jump the shark before other people do. So Facebook, which um, many people say, oh my gosh, Facebook is so over, but we at Food & Wine find Facebook to be incredibly powerful um, for us and bringing people to the brand. So Instagram is undergoing a tremendous sea change because there's so many sponsored posts and the ability to have advertiser messages there for brands. Um, I think it changes the environment a lot. And I think they should watch that. <laughs> you know, like if I could say something that answers, like you can't block. Um, you know, I've tried to block block some sponsored posts, and I'm shocked at how well these things do. Like if I want to block them, let me just tell you, there are a lot of people who want to see a car ad, you know, in their feed. Like hundreds of thousands of people. So um, that also I think is a little bit naive. You know, um, advertising. A lot of people actually love advertising. Magazines are built on it. You know, the idea that one page is editorial and if you love that, the the right ad in that environment is actually perfect and you want that. And it's the same in Instagram. So um, I think we have to be open to the fact that though you could consider it cluttered, you also could consider it an incredible way to discover things that you didn't know you wanted to discover, assuming that those choices are made intelligently. Yeah, that's that's a really critical thing, assuming choices are made intelligently, which 
<laughs> you know, caution, must make intelligent choices while on the internet should sort of be like the overarching warning when you go there, because it's so easy to make a bad choice on the internet and in like, social media. It's like picking up that cup of coffee, caution, yeah, you know, exactly. beverage is hot. I handed my phone to someone just the other day to read an email, and I said, but just be really careful and don't hit anything, because I don't want you accidentally, like, replying or forwarding or sending it just because, you know, something happened. So looking forward again, are there, are there new things that you've heard about that you're keeping an eye on that you think are interesting in the food, tech, app, digital, digital media space? I mean, I, I'm assuming you also get hundreds and hundreds of emails and messages on a regular basis of people wanting you to look at things and consult on things and participate in things. So you probably also have a pretty good view of, of what's out there. I have something of you. The thing that I'm fascinated about going forward is the way in which food and um, virtual reality will intersect, um, how soon that will be, and at what price point. So, you know, when the New York Times sent out a million, you know, viewers to, so that people could experience virtual reality, I feel like that was a turning point. How many of the rest of us will do that? And then how much money are we willing to spend to give our diners, users, a virtual reality experience? Um, and I feel like that is what everybody is talking about in the real world. And it hasn't been a point of discussion so much, probably because it's too expensive in the food world. But that intersection, um, I'm looking forward to seeing that. And I, I love the way that technology can help solve um, solve, that's too strong a word, can help address climate issues. Um, so the thing, the apps and the way that people are developing technology for um, saving water, reducing some stress on the planet, I think we'll see a lot of that in the food tech space. And um, as I'm sure you've talked about many times, the idea of creating food, um, which was sort of a Woody Allen joke, you know, pills. But I think we, we do have the printing of food in our future, right? Like printing dough. This is crazy to me. I mean, it's in a way, it's not that different from sort of a, a, a rice machine that's going to cook it for you. But um, I think that will be very interesting to see unfold. And the $30 million, you know, vegan egg, which I love saying how much it costs to make a plant-based product that replicates the action of an egg. Uh, but I think we're just at the beginning of that. There's so much interest in um, vegan and raw and, you know, pulling us off our addiction to meat. It will definitely be interesting to see how it shakes out in terms of what I almost think of it as when the microwave was first launched where it was this newfangled cooking thing and then people made, companies made products to use inside the microwave and then, you know, frozen dinners and microwave popcorn and burritos and Pop-Tarts and all those kinds of things. And there are some things that come out of it that are useful and there are some things that come out of it that are scientifically viable and perhaps a great achievement in the lab, but maybe not so great are you thinking, at the dinner table. Are you thinking about that for the egg? In I'm just thinking about it just generally, just or... generally, just being able to produce something vis-a-vis -vis technology, sometimes unto itself is a great achievement, but then the product of that 
will that resonate with people and will that be something that they actually want to see for breakfast every day? Right. I, I, I just think this idea of engineering food, which we've stayed away from for very obvious reasons, is going to become more and more critical. And so you want really smart people mm-hmm. you know, doing that. <laughs> And actually, just it's just um, just yesterday. I'll give a little shout out to the Tokla Society. They're a wonderful group of women in the food world, from the restaurant side, the media side, the hospitality side. If you see Tokolis come through your social media stream, click on it and check something out. It's really a smart, great group of women. We were at a, an event yesterday that. Um, celebrated their first annual mentorship program, which was great and a lot of fun. And uh, Dana and I had the opportunity to sit at the same table. And there was an interesting conversation about citrus plants and citrus fruits and different things that are happening and growing around the world and people who specialize in growing specific plants and then evolving them and, you know, creating new species. And in the context of a bunch of people really interested in food and forwarding our food culture, talking about farmers who are dedicated to one thing and evolving and creating new food types or new citrus types or new oranges. In that context, it's really wonderful. And then that's sort of the farmer being close to the product and reviving something and moving something forward. And we can all get on board with that. But it's so... The the thought that I had while we were having that conversation is that it is so close to genetically modified, genetically engineered, and there's, they're kind of almost exactly the same thing. It's just sort of who owns the technology, how it gets used in the world. Does somebody own it so other people can't use it? Does everybody own it so we can all profit from it? Is it for better, for worse, for good, for bad? You know, How do people use those superpowers? It's an interesting conversation because I think you're absolutely right that is going to continue to grow and come to the forefront. And there already, you can see a spectrum of people we would support genetically modifying food, like the small farmer who wants to create, you know, bring back different citruses and things like that. But then on the, you know, Monsanto giant, you know, agri-corn, nobody wants that. So it's already kind of happening, I think. Yeah, that that is indeed um, a broad spectrum, and uh, the thing is, we individually can make the choice, I guess. You know what we support, but it is scary when it falls into the larger um, right. genetically modified bucket. <laughs> well, so we have media, we have people, we have scientists. Um, what do you think is going to be important for restaurants and restaurant owners? You know, a lot of times when we talk about um, technology and food tech, it's a lot of people on the diner side and the dining room side building technology that they think will help restaurants, building technology that will create a more convenient, better dining experience for themselves. We don't have a lot of restaurants creating tech. um, And restaurants have very small margins and very low tech thresholds. So it's kind of difficult for them to absorb a lot of it or use a lot of it. So I I would be curious, you know, now you're going to have a really very close relationship with restaurants. What do you think on the restaurant tech side? So I'm heading to Chef's Club, which is uh, right now has two restaurants, one in Aspen and one in New York City in the Puck Building. And we showcase incredible 
chef talent from around the country and around the world showcase their dishes on the menu. So instead of a chef having, um, you know, one restaurant, we're basically one restaurant for many chefs. And that is in some ways technology enabled, right? It comes full circle with everything we've spoken about. How do we know about these chefs? Well, partly we know about them from stringers. Partly we know them about them from social media. So we fall in love with them from afar. Um, and partly our ability to have them come and reproduce their food in New York um, is enabled by technology. Um, I'm actually fascinated because I know that it's a particular passion of yours, the um, the back of the house technology. I'm now learning because this is like a, a big and exciting learning curve for me um, about the ways in which um, a restaurant can work to make sure to personalize the experience of the guest. So in a way, I'm not sure that falls on your continuum. Absolutely. To me, it is the restaurant being able to understand what somebody wants and then finding out a way to create that experience behind the scenes. Um, but because it is a passion of yours, like what do you see the, the future of that and wh where is it now? And then where is it going? Well, I think right now there will continue to be a growth, I think in the third party platforms. So, um, companies creating a middleman service to connect a restaurant with a customer or vendor. And I think probably one of the next waves that we'll see, which is already starting, are third-party platforms for purveyors and vendors. So imagine sort of, you know, multiple uh, Amazons for restaurant supply, where a restaurant would become, you know, would join you know, some Amazon-like entity and then have all the purveyors and all the vendors and that kind of thing in there and do sort of like one-stop shop, one accounting, one turnkey and all that. Does that exist? Uh, in, in some form, yeah. There's a one or two things that, that are starting. And the third-party platform, ordering services, seamless, reservation services, open table, all those kinds of things, they're harnessing the convenience of the Internet for restaurants. They're harnessing sort of the power of customer service data points and retention, which you know a huge amount about coming from publishing from one point of view. Um, and restaurants don't, but something like Open Table gives them the data that they're looking for. And so I think restaurants are going to increasingly have a lot more third-party platforms, which will be a little difficult on the one hand because restaurants don't have big margins to play with in terms of how many more services can they purchase because the margins are already so small. But it's also opening up a very data-driven world where I think they understand the value of it, but it's never really been accessible to them. So they can start to do their inventory in real time and their accounting in real time and their books in real time and say, wow, nobody wants tile fish. Everybody <laughs> wants halibut, right? except on Saturdays. We sell all the tile fish on Saturday. Let's only sell it on Saturday from now on because once everything starts to go into you know, a computer and uh, you know, a database and a spreadsheet and all that, and it can spit that information out to you, then they can start to make more and more intelligent economical decisions. So I think there's going to be a lot happening and a lot of opportunity. I think there's probably going to be a big level of frustration for a lot of the smaller independent restaurants. I mean, something, a group like the Danny Meyer group, 
you know, Union Square Hospitality, they have resources and multiple restaurants and they have power of scale to be able to sift through this. You know, something that's one of your, this place we're here right now, Roberta's, you know, it's people open small restaurants like this. And the thing that they're thinking most about is how amazing is the pizza going to be? What kind of music are we going to play? Are the chairs comfortable? And then to have this whole layer of, of data and tech, which is potentially beneficial, but also super overwhelming, that I think there's going to be, you know, some growth spurts and pains. Um, and I think there will be a shaking out. And probably we will see as a result of the difficult in percentage points that third-party platforms want to take frustration from not understanding it all and it all being a bit overwhelming, you start to hear about restaurants that are getting off open table, that are getting off of seamless, that don't want to be in those things because it's kind of just too much. They want to go back in-house. So maybe a return to the timeless things also where at the end of the day, you go to a restaurant or a coffee shop or a wine bar to have an experience with people, right? And people making your food, the people that you're with. So I do think that a reef, uh, uh, one sort of ricochet effect will be probably a pocket of people who start to disconnect from the tech a mm-hmm. little bit and go a little bit more old school, mm-hmm. person to person, phone, that kind of thing, which I think is potentially really great. I think that's great if, you, um, if scale isn't an issue and depending on who your customer is, right? Um, at Roberta's, they know their customer and the I mean the feedback every single day, every single minute, it's so personal. But if you scale it up there's ten Robertas, you know, it's harder Absolutely. You're, it's a little bit harder. Yeah. So it'll be interesting. I'm definitely excited for twenty sixteen. Excited to see what's gonna happen. Excited to see you in twenty sixteen. Um, before we go, our last episode of the year, I wanna take some time to um, Give some thanks and have an attitude of gratitude for the end of the year and going into next year. I want to thank DJ Uptown Nico, who is the guy who made the amazing theme song, which is called Nomada CPU Track. You can find it on SoundCloud. I want to thank the whole Heritage Radio crew, Aaron Fairbanks, the executive director, Jack Inslee, executive producer, Allison Hamlin, Liz, everybody, the interns. They do an amazing job here, and what you may or may not know is they do an amazing job on a very small nonprofit budget, and we're currently in the middle of our end-of-year fundraiser. We have a small gap to close. If you love Heritage Radio, if you think these conversations are important to have and to listen to and to share, go to heritageradionetwork.org, click the beating heart, and make a donation today. And if you donate... $60 and become a member, you will be the lucky recipient of the first ever Heritage Radio Cookbook, Podcast Potluck, Party in a PDF that I am helping to edit with recipes from many of our amazing hosts. I want to thank Dana Cowan for being the last guest of the year with the first thoughts for the next year. And everyone for listening. Have a wonderful holiday season. We'll see you in 2016. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.